Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Economic pain is creating a policy gulf between U.S. neocons and European politicians. Also, polls show that Americans are hyper-focused on the economy as President Biden delivers a speech on democracy, Trump, and January 6th, ahead of a likely midterm blowout for the Democrats. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dan Lazar, investigative journalist and author of America's Undeclared War. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Uh, Business Insider reports it's becoming increasingly clear that one thing will dictate the midterm elections, Americans' wallets, as uh, President Biden delivered a speech last night where he talked about lots of things, but one of them that he didn't talk about was Americans' wallets. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar? Yeah, I think I think inflation is a very important force. Uh, it's uh, it's driving a lot of anger. Uh, I think that liberals have underestimated it. I think that liberals, to a certain extent, are the inflation party. Uh, they've uh, they've done very. They they don't understand how important this is to uh, to voters, especially working class and poor voters, more than the the wealthy, and. Uh, Um, And uh, I think it looks like they're going to pay a pretty considerable price. How much of this pretty considerable price do you attribute to the promises that Joe Biden made on the campaign trail and that his administration has been unable to deliver, as well as understanding that inflation is a problem, but how much of the inflationary pressure do you think is being brought on by Biden administration foreign policy and Fed policy that is, uh, you don't cure supply side problems with demand side solutions? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, poor Joe Biden has sort of made every mistake in the book. Uh, I mean, he under he underestimated inflation from the beginning. Uh, he um, he uh, supported the Fed's uh, opening up of the credit spigots uh, at the, you know, during the pandemic, uh, and um, and then he then he he kind of sort of started a war with uh, in the Ukraine, which has you know exacerbated inflation all the more. So like you know he's kind of put his foot in it, in it at every step of the way. You know, Dan, I, I'm going to go back to something I said when Biden first came in and I saw the Victoria Newlands and Ned Prices and the worst warmongers and neocons imaginable in his cabinet. Neocons do not care about domestic policy and they do not care about ordinary people. We can see in Europe, they're wiping out the ordinary people. Even Ukraine, Ukraine right now, let's face it, who's suffering most? If you're a uh, an 85-year-old person in you in, in, in Kiev right now, you're, you're suffering. You need a diplomatic solution for just normal people. And the fact is, this is a ultra-neocon um, uh, administration, and we're kind of seeing the results of having ideologues like this in office. Dan, your thoughts on that? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I just, I mean, Joe Biden had no idea what was happening, and 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 the war, of course, is a disaster, and it's it's going to end up hurting the Democrats. I mean, uh, the you know the the the, the, the war is going to be long and nasty. It's it very well may escalate and spread, which would be a, a disaster of the first order. Um, and you know, and and Biden, you know, really did really helped provoke it with his highly aggressive uh, actions towards Russia and his refusal, his absolute refusal to, to consider any of Russia's uh, security concerns, which are really modest compared to America's security concerns. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's barely a single square inch on the face of the earth that, uh, that America doesn't regard it as its uh, secure, special security zone. Um, but you know, when Russia complained about a, a NATO buildup in its own backyard, uh, Biden wouldn't hear about it. Um, so the result was an explosion of military violence, which is wreaking havoc with the global economy, and is also, you know, also contains in it the seeds of a possible spread of the war uh, to you know to Poland, uh, Romania. Uh, Etc. And if that happens, man, that is going to be really bad, bad news. One of the other things or, or points that President Biden made during his speech, he says, after he talks about the uh, political violence, he says, there's something else at stake, democracy itself. I'm not the only one who sees it. Recent polls have shown an overwhelming majority of Americans believe our democracy is at risk that our democracy is under threat. Do you believe that democracy is at risk or are the some of the fundamental or inherent flaws in what we call American democracy being exposed? Yeah, I think I think I sort of believe both. I mean I think I think our democracy is at risk and that the um and and it's at risk because it's falling apart due to basic structural flaws. I mean, we don't really have a democracy. We have a system of minority dictatorship. Uh, the 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 Republicans enjoy a built-in advantage in the House, for example. They enjoy a huge advantage in the in the Senate. Uh, they enjoy an equally huge advantage in the Electoral College, uh, and now you know, especially in the Supreme Court. Uh, so, you know, the, the Republicans have lost seven out of the late eight, last eight presidential elections, but they essentially are using various constitutional tricks to run the show in Washington. Uh, and, and that's why democracy is falling apart. The Democrats are furious. They don't know what to do about it. Uh, and the Republicans are determined to, to, uh, to, to hold on to their advantages at all costs. So this is the same thing happened in the 1850s. We're seeing an amazing repeat of, a, of, a, of those events back in the mid-19th century. The American conservative has this interesting story, a very good article, actually. It's Ted Galen Carpenter. We see him very regularly on antiwar.com. NATO's fraying unity on Russia policy, maintaining a stance of knee-jerk support for Kiev is not a winning political strategy. Your thoughts, Dan? I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, uh, I think, the, I think the, um, the alliance is coming apart over economic issues that are, that are, you know, that are created by the war. Uh, and and no one knows when this war will end. No one knows what will happen. And the problem is that is that you know 
that they, people have not begun looking into the question of how the war began. I mean, so the official line is that it's all, you know, Vladimir Putin's fault. But anybody who thinks about it for more than five minutes will know that is it, that is not the case. And and that's not, not even mentioning the uh, the uh, Nord Stream two pipeline. I mean, anybody who thinks about that knows that you know that that the uh, it wasn't Russia which done it. It was the uh, <laughs> U.S. or maybe the U.K. There is an interesting piece in the Saker. Germany's position in America's new world order. It's written by Michael Hudson. Uh, Germany has become an economic satellite of America's new cold war with Russia, China, and the rest of Eurasia. Germany and other NATO countries have been told to impose trade and investment sanctions upon themselves that will outlast today's proxy war in the Ukraine. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that I think he, I think Hudson is right. I've, you know, I've, I've met Michael. A number of times over the years, uh, uh, yeah, I think it, I think he's basically correct. Uh, I mean, uh, Germany is really taking it on the chin. Uh, its economy is is reeling. Uh, it's it, it it you know Olaf Scholz, the uh, the chancellor, does not want to be drawn in deeper into a war with Russia. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, Germany has been there, done that, and doesn't want to do it again. Uh, but yet he's being pushed in that, pushed in that direction. Um, and he doesn't know what to do. He's perplexed. Uh, and, um, and, you know, meanwhile, you know, Nord Stream is, uh, weighs very heavily on him as well. I mean, everyone knows who did Nord Stream. Everyone knows that, you know. And, and, uh, and uh, yet no one is willing to face the truth. You know, a feckless, subservient um, political class in um, – in the EU, um, to me, can only hold on but so long because they don't care. They'll let their people starve to death by the millions. They really don't care. It's clear and obvious that they are perfectly willing to sacrifice their citizens, their way of life, their everything. They're going to throw it out the door because they of what they've been told by Joe Biden. But it also appears that though they're we're not I, I, I can go online, I can go on Telegram and find countless videos of people in the streets struggling with the police, you name it. In Europe, they're hiding these protests, but these things are blowing up. The question, Dan, is how much longer can they maintain that position between their masters in Washington, D.C. and an infuriated economic um, base who's just not going to allow themselves to be totally wiped out without a And here's the last part, without a fight. Uh, the, the answer is, I don't know. The, the only thing I do know is that the longer they hold on, the, the greater the reckoning at the end. I mean, you know, they'll they'll face such a furious reaction that, you know, that all bets will be off the table. That is really quite clear. I mean, Italy is going through it now. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and no one really seems to care that Maloney is a fascist, even though she because she's supporting the uh, the U.S. line on the Ukraine. Um, but, uh, you know, Italy, Germany, France, they're all these governments are all going to face their reckoning. At a certain point, uh, over Nord Stream, over the war in general, over inflation, over the gutting of the industrial economy, this is all going to these are this is all going to come home to roost, and it'll be quite a remarkable confrontation when they finally do. 
And I, I don't even know if this question can be answered, but because we've been because we've been out that reality or that what we believe to be uh, that coming reality. How do you see it manifesting itself? We're talking about the dead of winter. We're talking about people being extremely cold and hungry and angry at the fact that their circumstance was brought on by the lack of care by their by their government. Can you give us any any thoughts on how do you see it manifesting itself? So far, it seems to be manifesting itself, but what uh, via a dramatic shift to the right. I mean, uh, Maloney, uh, Orban, uh, the you know the growth of the AfD, the alternative for for Deutschland and uh, in Germany, uh, this this the uh, the Swedish Democrats, etc. Uh, right-wing part, and I, and I would also add the Republicans in America, uh, and the uh, and you know and uh, Netanyahu's uh, semi-fascist coalition in Israel. I mean, parties of the far right are really coming and coming on strong, and uh, and uh, what that seems to augur is a descent into really unbridled and aggressive nationalism. Know every country for itself, um, and uh, that does not bode well for democracy. Uh, I think that trend can't last forever, but it can go on for a long time, and things things can get really hairy in the process. You know, Dan, we've only got about a minute, but it seems I, I agree with you. But I think what we're going to see is the the brand of non-interventionalist nationalism, which. That to some extent could be good for us as a whole, could be, I'm not saying it will, but if you're in any of those particular countries, it may, may not be real great. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that, that I think nationalism uh, for the moment is uh, sort of takes on an isolationist uh, tinge. Uh, that's true in America, true in, uh, in Italy, uh, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's kind of anti-NATO uh, and a bit leaning towards more, more sympathetic to, uh, to Russia. Um, but the trouble with that kind of isolationism is that it has a way of turning into aggressiveness, aggression, really fast. I uh, remember, I mean, I mean, uh, Donald Trump was a uh, was in favor of peace with Russia, but he was more aggressively anti-Chinese than the Democrats were until recently. And Iran, and you know, Netanyahu was this guy. So, and when you say the war spreading, the war could spread. May not not necessarily have to spread in Europe. There could be a lot of other places that the neocons are up to miscreant behavior. Dan Lazar is an investigative journalist and author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Lebanon-Israel gas deal is in deep trouble as Benjamin Netanyahu promises that his coalition will refuse to abide by the agreement. Also, violence escalates as a Palestinian is shot and three Israeli peace officers are wounded. Joining us now to discuss this matter, we have John Kiriakou. John's a former CIA officer and co-host of Political Misfits on Midday right here on Radio Sputnik. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, John, before we dig into these stories, I understand uh, you were kind of close to some action this morning. Do you want to fill us in? Today, today is my last full day here in Jerusalem, and I thought, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of time for myself and see some of the sites that I've missed. So I set my alarm early, and I went to the Mount of Olives and. I went to the Virgin Mary's tomb and and Absalom's tomb and saw a bunch of really great stuff, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I started working my way back to Jerusalem's old city from the Mount of Olives. And um, I wanted to I wanted to buy this little tchotchke. And so I needed to cut through the old city. So I went to an entrance called the Iron Gate, which is the the gate closest to the um, to the uh, Dome of the Rock. And uh, because the Mount of Olives is, of course, you know, uh, a mount, uh, I walked up about um, 2,000 feet and then down, and then I had to go back up several hundred feet, and I was a little bit winded. So I sat down on a bench immediately outside the Iron Gate. It was about 25 feet away. People are bustling around, coming in, going out, going about their morning business. But there's one Palestinian guy that's just kind of milling around, which is unusual. And he was holding a box. Well, there were three Israeli policemen there at the gate, and the three of them walked over to this guy. And I'm sitting on a bench resting before I go the rest of the way to this shop. I'm sitting with an American woman from Brooklyn. And um, the three policemen walk over to this guy, and before they could even say anything or ask him what he was doing, he pulls a knife out of the box and he stabs all three of the policemen. Wow. It happened just in seconds. He stabbed all three of them. One went down. Another one knocked the guy down and then pulled out a gun and just shot him at point blank range, just killed him instantly. And this woman turns to me and says, my brain is not processing what my eyes just saw. And I said, they just killed that guy. She got up and ran. And of course, immediately you hear sirens and horns. And I thought this is, this is my cue to get the heck out of here. So I bugged out. As it turned out, that was one of three incidents that took place this morning in West Jerusalem. And, um, the press is speculating that it's a result of, you know, opposition to the uh, to the election, uh, the final election results and and frustration and such. Uh, there were two incidents in the West Bank overnight. It's just kind of a rough period in Israel right now. I think we may have discussed this with you yesterday, talking about another incident that took place. But it seems as though this is not a rough patch it seems as though this is a deliberate shift in mindset and the Palestinians are taking matters into their hands and they are becoming the aggressors. This is a policy shift. You know what? I think that's right, Wilmer. Um, this is a policy shift. This has been an unusually deadly year for Palestinians. Hundreds of Palestinians have been killed by Israeli police and Israeli uh, uh, army forces so far this year. 
people are frustrated. They have nothing to show for participating in the most recent Israeli government. Uh, there's no end in sight to this this discriminatory apartheid uh, uh, social policy that Israel has. And yeah, I think you're right. People are getting tired. You know, whether it's the whether it's the cold-blooded murder of Shireen Abu Akla just several months ago, to to the creation of this new lion's den in the city of Nablus, where the the police fired um, into a crowd the other day and and killed six people. Two of them were just barbers sitting in their barber chairs waiting for the day to begin. So yeah, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. And uh, I think I mentioned to you on the show yesterday or the day before that, that, you know, coming from the United States where we're all still talking about a two-state solution, that's just an impossibility. There is no such thing as a two-state solution. And the Palestinians know that. They've come to that realization. And so the only thing they have left is to fight. You know, John, one of the things, it's, it's discussed here as though this is a policy issue, as though there is an intellectual um, facet to this issue. But for the people that, many people that I've talked to that have gone there, that have stayed there for some periods of time, that have stayed with Palestinians and gone to the various towns said, this, it, that's not at all the case. That the, a lot of these Israelis have what, I've heard this term, a racial hatred towards the Palestinians where they don't want to view them as people who deserve, for lack of a better term, basic human rights. Do you see that? Yes, I see that. And it's it's on full display uh, or it was on full display in this uh, in this election where um, where a new party, one that that has just been created called the Religious Zionism Party. It's headed by a guy named Itamar Ben-Gavir. Itamar Ben-Gavir has been convicted of nine separate felonies over the years, including terrorism and attempted murder. Um, he said just day before yesterday that he wants to expel all non-Jews and Jews who are not appropriately pro-Israel enough from the country. Um, he he, in his past, has opened fire in a drive-by shooting on innocent, you know, unarmed Palestinians. Um, he's a noted homophobe, and his party won 16 seats the day before yesterday. Today, there's talk that he's going to become the minister of homeland security. So if I were Palestinian and I saw this playing out uh, this week, I would be pretty upset and, and willing to take up arms as well. So in response to the conclusion that Netanyahu will once again become the prime minister, uh, State Department spokesman Ned Price uh, was at the podium and said, one, we hope that all Israeli government officials will continue to share the values of an open democratic society, including tolerance and respect. Well, A, for him to say that the United States hopes that will happen, the U.S. has invaded or used the lack of sharing values of open democratic societies. The U.S. has used that as the basis for invading countries. So what does that say to you there? And then also, uh, well, let me, what does that say to you there? Uh, because to me, that sounds like an incredible uh, level of hypocrisy. And he also says that 
the U.S. relationship with Israel has always been based upon our shared interests. So what that says to me is we're we're going to we're staying with business as usual. And, and that really is the the epitome of hypocrisy. That's the hypocrisy that is U.S. policy toward the Palestinians. You know, just to give you a couple of examples, this this Itamar Ben Gavir. Um, you know, he he didn't even have a political party uh, a year ago. This is all new. And um, the Israeli press said today that um, that he sort of became somebody after the most recent uh, Gaza war. This this was a little bit more than a than a year ago. And that most of his support, interestingly enough and dangerously enough, comes from soldiers and from young people who were voting for the very first time. Now, he also will bring with him into the Knesset a rabbi by the name of Dov Lior. It says here, Dov Lior is known for his extremist, racist, and misogynistic religious rulings and rhetoric. Um, this, this is who is going to be one of the major partners uh, for Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, ben Gavir was a follower of Meyer Kahana. You, I'm sure you remember Meyer Kahana. He was an American Jew who came here and uh, was known for his racist rhetoric. He ended up being assassinated back in 1990. Uh, this is sort of the reincarnation of Meyer Kahana, and it's it's a dangerous development. Lebanon and the deal with Israel on the maritime border. The U.S. has says they're guaranteeing the Lebanon the the uh, the gas deal, but Benjamin Netanyahu says he wants to tear it up. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, he says he wants to tear it up. He said it several times over the last couple of days. Um, this is a major step forward to toward you know a peaceful coexistence between Israel and Lebanon, and it's it's going to provide some revenue that Lebanon desperately needs. But this isn't an issue that concerns just the Israelis and the and the uh, Lebanese. As you just noted, the United States said, no, we want this thing to, to remain in place. This morning, both the Greek and Cypriot governments made an identical statement that this is a, a major step forward. We want this uh, this agreement on the maritime boundary to remain in place. The Egyptians are expected to make a similar statement uh, soon. I think there's a middle road here where Netanyahu can say we don't respect this maritime boundary and then sort of behind the scenes respect it. I At least I hope that he can respect it. In the wake of or in the context of or in the reality of the United States walking away from the JCPOA after an American president signed on the dotted line, what does a U.S. guarantee on anything mean? Not much, to tell you the truth. Um, and, and I think that's why what we really need to see is, is support for the agreement from other regional, regional powers. The Jordanians haven't said anything. The Syrians certainly have it. Nobody would pay attention even if they did. Uh, but, but even Hezbollah said that they would respect this boundary. Even Hezbollah. So this is a, this is a chance for Netanyahu to do the right thing. Let's just see if if rhetoric is one thing and policy is another with him. John Kiriakou is a former CIA officer and co-host of Political Misfits, which appears daily right here at midday on Radio Sputnik. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nickton, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. U.S. Senate candidate Diane Sayre joins us to discuss her campaign. Sayre seeks to defeat incumbent Senate leader Chuck Schumer and move to leave NATO and end the Ukraine crisis via diplomacy. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Diane Sayre, U.S. Senate candidate for Senate in New York State. Diane, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. U.S. voters head to the polls on November 8th to determine who will control Congress with the Democrats at risk of losing both chambers. Diane, welcome to the critical hour and tell us about your uh, your campaign and your uh, we'll talk about your uh, platform. Well, I'm running as an independent candidate uh, in the state of New York. You have to make up a uh, party line. So I named it LaRouche after my 33 year association with Lyndon LaRouche, and uh, the state made it extremely difficult for me to get on the ballot. If you're not a Democrat or Republican, you have to get 45,000 signatures for a statewide race within six weeks. Uh, that never existed before. It was 15,000 signatures before, already quite difficult. And I ended up being the only person in the state, the only statewide candidate that succeeded. So the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, although they have a very substantial following, they are not on the ballot in this election. Diane, you say, quote, first of all, I think we should stop supplying weapons to Ukraine, number one, but it's really not about Ukraine. That's the problem. The problem comes from the West we know Zelensky was inclined already back in March to talk about Ukraine remaining neutral, not joining NATO. It's interesting you take that position while so-called progressive Democrats took the position uh, and wrote a letter saying, well, we should keep supplying weapons, but we also need to talk about diplomacy. Talk about the difference between your position and the position that was taken and then retracted by the so-called progressive caucus? Sure. Well, they are, they're caught between their own special interests, I suppose. Uh, people really don't have freedom to say what they think without consequences. And because of what happened with an intervention by some of my staffers, actually, on, on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which went viral and the tens of millions of views where they were yelling at her about nuclear war and why don't you be like Tulsi Gabbard and break with the party and so on. Uh, I think they felt some pressure that perhaps people don't want nuclear war and want diplomacy, which would be an accurate reading. However, they didn't even dare to say that straightforwardly. And then when they got the blowback, perhaps from Schumer and others, they retracted it, although I heard that Ro Khanna didn't wish to retract. But at any rate, look, they're, they're acting as if nobody knows the origin of this crisis, which is provocations by the West going back to at minimally 2014 when the Obama-Biden administration overthrew the government of Ukraine and brought in a uh, revival of Stepan Bandera, the Hitler collaborator, and going back further to James Baker III's promise to Gorbachev in 1990 that NATO would not move one inch to the east. 
And people have been denying that that was said because there was nothing in writing. But since then, numerous witnesses have corroborated that. So it is the West that has violated everything we promised that we would do. And given that Zelensky was talking last August about retaking Crimea by force, it was clear to Putin that if Ukraine joined NATO and Zelensky then invaded Crimea, you would have a full-out war between NATO and Russia with no uh, space in between. Your thoughts on the pushback, you know, whenever you now we have saw what happened to some of the Democrats who came forward and even just they had a mealy mouth kind of letter they wrote with where they mentioned diplomacy. But we see that anyone that talks about that now gets attacked as some kind of a, you know, a Russian bot or a traitor or whatever. And I'm sure you face those kinds of uh, attacks. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. In fact, I am on the list from the Ukrainian Center for Countering Disinformation, which admits on their website that they're underwritten by the U.S. State Department. Uh, our ambassador has been in meetings of that group in Ukraine, which I think is really unacceptable. I do not support silencing political disagreement Um And I think it's very bad for the U.S. to be funding overseas agencies that are seeking to silence or worse, threaten uh, people who are who have a point of view different from their own. Uh, And if you have to resort to those kind of tactics, then I think it should uh, cause one to doubt the credibility of your position, because if you were telling the truth, you could easily prove it. What is your position now on NATO? And if you believe that NATO should be disbanded, uh, do you think that it should be replaced by another entity? Or has the time for the need of an organization such as NATO passed into the annals of history? That's a wonderful question. Uh, As you may know, I have giant billboards in Queens and Brooklyn that say U.S. out of NATO. (laughs) So I think NATO really should have been disbanded when Germany was reunified. I think we need an entirely new security architecture. I don't know why it is the view of policymakers in the United States that Russia is an adversary or China. Uh, If you look at our history from the American Revolution and the League of Armed Neutrality, um, the support of Catherine the Great, uh, the support of Tsar Alexander II of Abraham Lincoln during the misnamed Civil War, uh, World War II, Russia would be a natural partner and ally of the United States. So I think we need an entirely new security architecture where the security and sovereignty of every nation is respected and that we work together to eliminate things like poverty, disease. Um, Perhaps we should be collaborating to make sure we don't get struck by an asteroid or a comet. Um, There are things that we can do without giving up any of our sovereignty, our differences in religion, culture, uh, whatever, but that uh, combine for a common good of mankind. And I think that would be much more productive. 
I know one of the things you've talked about, and you may not have exactly used these words, is this kind of neoliberal world order, this globalization order, uh, 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 world order. And I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm not saying that you're using those words. I tend to use them. But, you know, this financialization that has, you know, deindustrialized the United States, it's now deindustrializing Europe, and the only people that benefit are a handful of oligarchs. Your thoughts on the economic order and what you think needs to happen? Well, it's bankrupt. We might as well tell the truth. Uh, You have this group of billionaires. You have Klaus Schwab, who wrote this book called The Great Reset. Uh, They seek to impose their will. Many of them have expressed that they think the planet is overpopulated. Now, I guess a nuclear war would do a lot in alleviating that as a problem, if that's (laughs) what they're going for. Um, So it's a very ugly view of of man of humanity, and uh, they are totally bankrupt. And what they hope no one over here notices is that an entirely new order, something actually that LaRouche proposed decades ago, is beginning to form with the Eurasian Economic Union, the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, the agreements that Russia and China signed on February 4th, Uh, It is possible for nations to work together for mutual interest, even while they still have some major sticky points and relations among them. Uh, So I think we should face the music, so to speak. We cannot keep printing money and bailing out this crazy system. People should take a lesson from what happened to uh, the Weimar Republic with regard to hyperinflation and the lead of that, how that led to fascism. How do you translate that or do you, can you translate that into the current economic circumstance that is ravaging Europe as we look at the problems in Germany, we look at the problems in France and in Italy and and in Britain with gas poverty? And, and the other problems that, that they're having, many of which are being exacerbated by U.S. policy. Well, if you look back at the COP26 conference in Glasgow, uh, you know, now King Charles, then Prince Charles really presided over it. And he kept talking about global Britain, which should send shivers up anybody's spine. And what did they say? They said that getting rid of fossil fuels, curbing consumption of meat and other things were should be international policy and including, I believe, military or we should treat it like a war. So if you want to stop people from having food and energy, the kind of things we've been doing, I uh, would definitely uh, help with that. I mean, everyone heard President Biden's February 7th remarks about the Nord Stream pipeline not existing or whatever it was he said, should Russia, quote unquote, invade Ukraine. Uh, Now we have the problems that poor Liz Truss has brought upon herself by her indiscretions um, with regard to that. And also the uh, British probably directed drone attacks on uh, Sevastopol disrupting the route and the security conditions for grain to be shipped through the Black Sea. So in effect, you're seeing an enforcement of a genocidal policy. They say we want to stop fossil fuels, stop fossil fuel 
production and and consumption. We don't have an alternative right now. We don't have enough nuclear power plants. And anyone who thinks that solar panels and windmills are going to cut it should, I don't know what, a friend of mine thinks we should tie all the politicians to blades of the uh, windmills and see how they like it. But I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, they, we'll get enough hot air from them to uh, power the world for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, that's one one idea. I did want to ask you about another thing you talk about, and it's one of my pet peeves, and that's cancel culture, because they pretend as though we've got to look out for my marginalized um, uh, communities. But as we saw when Tara Reid made a, a complaint against Joe Biden, cancel culture only works against their adversaries. It never really works against people who are insiders in that community. Your thoughts? Well, take Hillary Clinton. Isn't she right now screaming about election fraud? She's allowed to discuss it, but no one else is. Uh, so absolutely, uh, that's the case. And that's what I'm saying. We have to dedicate ourselves to the universal aspects of humanity. There are certain universal, some of them are just physical and basic, like food, energy, water, etc. But the idea that every single person is potentially a genius or that's creative I think that's the role of government is to make it possible for people to develop their God-given talents. And that doesn't know a creed or a background or so-called race, skin color, whatever. Uh, that's universal. Uh, but we don't focus on that. We try and bestialize people and divide them on hot button issues. And uh, I don't think it's really working as well as was intended, although the people who have bought into this, I'm sorry to say, are quite hysterical and shrill. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. We've been talking with Diane Sayre. You can go to, well, you know what? Diane, what's your website? I forgot to ask you. <laughs> Sayreforsenate.com, and Sayre is four letters, S like Sam, A-R-E, the word for, F-O-R, Senate.com. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The new U.S. Nuclear Posture Review admits that the U.S. knows that Iran is not seeking to build nuclear weapons. The report was re released last week and specifically notes that, quote, Iran does not today possess a nuclear weapon, and we currently believe it is not pursuing one. However, they... They continue to threaten Iran regarding nuclear weapons. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Mark Slavoda. Mark is an international relations and security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. Antiwar.com. The Pentagon's new nuclear posture review says the U.S. believes Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapon. But Biden administration officials are still threatening military action against Iran to prevent it from acquiring one. It seems odd. Your thoughts, Mark Sloboda? 
Uh, well, first of all, it is nice of the Pentagon to catch up with the rest of the world that has for over a decade now. I mean, uh, it, it has been painfully obvious that Iran ha does not have a nuclear weapon and is not pursuing a nuclear weapon, no matter the nice little cartoons that Netanyahu draws when he's speaking in front of the UN. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think what this indicates, when we've got this contradictory statements uh, coming from the Pentagon and from the administration, um, we see a military that is not always, but sometimes being more honest about the serious things than the political rhetoric that we hear out of the White House. And the exact same thing is going on right now in Ukraine, where the the White House, uh, Downing Street are all talking, oh, Russia, Russia could use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Pentagon is saying, we see no signs that the Russian <laughs> government is preparing to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. And you notice the 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 disconnect between these two things, between a sober, quiet military analysis of the situation and the weaponization of political rhetoric for foreign policy aims. And I think what this tells us quite seriously is that the whole uh, function of the sanctions, the the protracted uh, half-hearted attempts with the JCPOA are really about maintaining the sanctions for crippling Iran's economy and isolating the country politically as a, a just another form of U.S. containment against what it sees as a country not aligned with its global hegemony. Biden's special envoy for Iran, Robert Malley, says we will use other tools and in last resort, a military option if necessary to stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. What that says to me is the focus is regime change and making the citizens of Iran suffer that be, unless we're trying to stop them from acquiring a weapon that we have no evidence that they're trying to acquire. And in fact, they've said we're not trying to acquire a weapon. So to me, that's that all adds up to regime change. Yeah, I, I, I think like uh, a military option is something that the U.S., of course, along with Israel and Saudi Arabia, which are always pushing the U.S. towards military action on Iran, um, is, is something that's always out there. It's something that they like to leave hanging, whether or not they regard it as seriously. Meanwhile, regime change efforts uh, under the table by covert and sharp power means, we see that happening right now because we see that uh, U.S., U.S. organizations, um, U.S. social media is directly involved in trying to exploit the situation with the protests in Iran and weaponize those as a tool of U.S. foreign policy, which in this case is regime change or at least destabilizing the regime uh, by these type of measures. And I actually regard these as more serious than a military threat against Iran. 
Russia issues call to other nuclear powers. The rest of the big five need to match Moscow's commitment to avoid nuclear war, the foreign ministry insists. Moscow is strictly and consistently guided by the principle that a nuclear war can never be won and should never be fought, the Russian foreign ministry said on Wednesday, calling on other atomic powers to demonstrate in practice their own commitment to this. Uh, Well, the U.S. doesn't have a commitment to this, so that's something they can't demonstrate, Mark. Yeah, I mean, there is a, a quite a, a degree of difference between Russia's uh, nuclear policy doctrine, its um, conditions for using a nuclear weapon, and the United States. Uh, Russia has uh, a very high degree of threshold. Only a um, first strike of a nuclear or other weapon of mass destruction on Russian territory – or a, a overwhelming uh, conventional invasion of the country, such as that threatens the existence of the state itself. Those are Russia's only. And what I think they're doing in part with this is they're asking uh, the other nuclear uh, armed countries, although they're talking primarily to the U.S. and, and the U.K., uh, to restrict their policy doctrines for the use or to be as transparent about it as they are. And uh, I think this is also comes, of course, at the very tense geopolitical position right now in Ukraine and the Russian government's anger that the uh, Western countries backing Kiev completely, uh, well, whether either dismissed or just ignored uh, Russia's accusations that the Kiev regime has been planning a dirty bomb uh, false flag uh, as an attempt to, to create an international international incident and perhaps provoke direct um, a Western uh, NATO military intervention into Ukraine. Uh, when uh, you know one of the nuclear armed countries says there is a a nuclear a threat of you know, an actual uh, uh, nuclear use, even if it's just a dirty bomb and the other countries ignore it uh, and and just blow its concerns away. Uh, you know, that that shows a, a clearly uh, divided, if you want to say, Security Council at the U.N., but also the small group of, of seriously nuclear armed countries. So in August, Tony Blinken mentions the use of nuclear weapons. And then President Biden responds to that, and the U.S. narrative then becomes Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons. We've been fighting this ghost of an Iranian nuclear weapon for 25 years. And now they come out and say, we don't have any evidence that Iran has a nuclear weapon, and we, we see no indication that Russia is preparing. So what's happened to the U.S. nuclear argument? Am I wrong to connect these two stories? No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and, and we've seen it. I mean, Liz Truce as well made statements to the press during her um, very short-lived prime minister's uh, election campaign where she was um, saying, you know, 
trying to present herself as a tough Thatcherite woman image, saying that she would press the button if necessary, um, and and ma- making it clear that that was you know firing nuclear weapons uh, at Russia. We've also seen just in the past forty eight hours, um, uh, the U.S. government uh, release information that it is sending nuclear capable bombers to be permanently deployed in Australia, uh, which is quite obvious. Um, Last week, we saw the U.S. uh, indicate that it was up Grading, uh, doing a a uh, uh, emergency or or faster than expected upgrade of the nuclear weapons that it has in Europe, and it was doing rolling that out months before it was supposed to. These are all the U.S ratcheting up and 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 uh its allied countries in nato ratcheting up nuclear um uh, tensions not just with the rhetoric that they are doing and projecting onto other countries but with actual deployments of nuclear weapons and nuclear weapon uh, uh, capable launch vehicles uh, around the world that is, you know, bringing us closer to this, um, you know, uh, strike of midnight uh, on the atomic clock. Um, I did want to ask you, Mark, you know, we had some issues we really haven't gotten a chance to talk with you about. There was the attack on the uh, Black Sea uh, fleet headquarters in Sevastopol. Um, that certainly the Russia has um, backed out of the grain deal, and uh, because of the the, uh, the the what the way the deal the way the attack went down, I understand they're back in. Can you update us on the current state of affairs regarding the the grain deal? Yeah. So first of all, I think that that attack in Sevastopol, I think it's pretty clear that Russia had. Uh, intelligence beforehand that the attack was going to take place and allowed it to take place under controlled conditions um, to to then attempt to renegotiate uh, this grain deal, which they were already unhappy with because Western countries had not lived up their to their promises to remove sanctions against the ships and insurance necessary for Russia to get its fertilizer to the most needed countries, Africa. They removed it for themselves so they could get fertilizer, but not uh, that Russia uh, would still have these hindrances getting fertilizer to the countries that actually need it the most, showing that the EU doesn't give a fig for the African people, uh, for the most needing people in the world. But uh, hey, you know, uh, any anything that might lower inflation uh, in mm-hmm. in Europe uh, is, is is they're all for, uh, even if it removes means removing some of their own sanctions uh, on on Russia, uh, at least on a piecemeal basis. Um, with regards to the grain corridor, I have to say that I think that these the, the idea of a written promise from the West Bank Kim <laughs> Putsch regime that they won't weaponize the grain corridor. I mean, come on, serious. I mean, th- does any I, I, I don't take that seriously. I, I know very well that the Kremlin must not take it. Uh, you know, it, it, if it was actually written on paper, it wouldn't, of course, be worth, uh, you know, uh, you know, the paper that it was written on. Uh, you, you know, you, you know what you can use a piece of paper like that for if you're caught in an inconvenient situation out hiking in the woods or something like that. Um, 
But, um, I mean, there's also supposed to be some move on finally removing these uh, Western sanctions on fertilizer. But I have to say that I think Russia um, re-entering uh, you know, after pulling out of the grain deal just after a couple days with caveats, I think it's a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign that Russia realizes uh, uh, that in order for them to enforce a real blockade of Ukraine, um, uh, you know, uh, which w- would be a requirement because obviously the Kiev regime was going ahead with shipping grain to interdict those vessels and perhaps fire on them would expose the Black Sea fleet to U.S. and U.K. supplied harpoon missiles, which we already have seen almost certainly take out the Black Sea flagship, the Moskva. Russia could do it, but would it be worth the potential cost? I don't think so, uh, but it still makes Russia look weak, and that is certainly the way it is being read uh, by Western politicians and the um, uh, foreign policy commentariat that I have seen in the United States. They're seeing Russia re-entering the grain deal after just two days as a sign of weakness and that they can't control the Black Sea. Mark Slobod is an international relations and security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Benjamin Netanyahu, whose extreme right coalition is set to take power in Israel, and observers expect him to step up violence against Palestinians. Also, the U.S. may be trying to guarantee the Lebanon gas deal that Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to stop. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we've got Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome to The Critical Hour. Great to be with you guys. You know, we have some fairly breaking news. It's about four hours ago. Apparently, Pakistani officials said a gunman opened fire at a container truck carrying Imran Khan, wounding him slightly and also some of his supporters. There are those of us, okay, me, uh, let's be honest, Laith, who suspect the CIA's hand in this. I don't know. Maybe you see things differently. But before we get going, your thoughts on this breaking story, Laith Maroof. Of course, uh, your listeners are up to date. Amran Khan has took positions since the beginning of the Ukraine war uh, in support of Russia and against American uh, mission nations. And uh, that resulted with him being uh, removed from office uh, in a coup. And he's been um, rallying across Pakistan for since that moment, uh, millions and tens and tens of millions of Pakistanis came out to the streets in his uh, events and demonstrations and parades. Uh, he raised uh, most of the money for aid that came after the floods in Pakistan. So he was running uh, very strong, uh, clearly in an attempt to come back into power. And uh, it was kind of expected that uh, the United States and its uh, puppets in the region will attempt an assassination 
uh, on him. And that's what we saw today, two gunmen, uh, one with a gun, another with a machine gun. And uh, if it weren't for some of the uh, demonstrators that were there uh, that jumped in front of the bullets, literally, uh, he would have been dead like uh, multiple other previous presidents in Pakistan. What do you think, Leith, are the, let's say, the two major concerns or fears that the United States would have about the return of Imran Khan that would lead the United States or some other entity to to try to assassinate him? Look, this is a country that is uh, almost 200 million people. Uh, so the population size is even on a grade uh, that is in the top tier of the countries in the world. Uh, it has nuclear weapons, and it is a uh, you know pathway for trade. If there is actually stability in the country, there will be uh, you know the, the belt and road, the Silk Road that the Chinese are trying to reactivate the original important trade routes of uh, humanity uh, would go through Pakistan. And if Pakistan is integrated uh, and escapes having to be just a provider of cheap labor for the Gulf, uh, you know, the Pakistanis uh, are like the, you know, the cheap labor of the, the Gulf region. If they can escape that the relationship and become a, a hub for trade and transport, uh, they will be a, a sovereign country, truly. And this is where the United States comes in to destabilize uh, such a country. And um, of course, Pakistan uh, now around it on both sides, Iran and India have seemed to have completely uh, exited any colonial um you know, balances in the world and are sovereign. So Pakistan is next. As final votes were counted on Wednesday night, Likud leader Benjamin Netanyahu was reportedly looking to put together a coalition quickly after his right religious bloc appeared to have won a resounding victory in Tuesday's elections. The results pointed to a stunning comeback for Netanyahu, Netanyahu currently on trial in three corruption cases. Oh, boy, the United States is really making sure that uh, we push back against corruption throughout the United uh, throughout the, the world. Your thoughts, Leith? Of course, uh, you know, this is a uh, tectonic movement that just happened with this election because of its effects on both Lebanon Syria and Iran. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu, I, you know, your listeners must understand this uh, deal that was signed uh, for uh, demarcation of international waters between Lebanon and occupied Palestine was signed on two different papers. And it was a, on one, the president of Lebanon signing with the American a representative, and on the other paper is the Israeli signing on with American representatives. So if uh, Netanyahu actually rips apart this deal, uh, which is very likely because he has also a vendetta with the Biden and Democrats, uh, the Saudis also have a vendetta with the Biden and the Democrats, uh, then he's basically breaking a deal with the United States. 
And of course, the United States is not going to stand on the side of Lebanon in any situation, even with all the uh, assurances today that came out of the foreign affairs minister of Lebanon, who who's counted on the American camp anyways. Um, this is a situation that could lead us to war. Uh, the threats that are coming to, to Iran from the United States now can be doubled with Netanyahu's presence. Uh, the whole region uh, is going to uh, exp- have a higher probability of, uh, of confrontation now with Netanyahu coming into power. There's, to me, an interesting paragraph in this Times of Israel article discussing Netanyahu, and it says, while backed throughout the election by the far-right ultra-Zionists and, uh, and the uh, ultra-Orthodox, Netanyahu will still need to haggle with the parties over policy goals and current and cabinet posts to secure their support. Well, that sounds to me like the very same narrative that caused a lot of this electoral problem over the last, what, five years, resulting in the number of different prime ministers that that they've had is the inability to haggle with the parties over goals and cabinet posts. So are we looking at going back to the future or does Netanyahu stand a better chance now of solidifying his power? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the real biggest winners was the uh, party of, uh, you know, the Jewish supremacist party from the West Bank, uh, settlements and colonies uh, led by Ben Gever, and he's now the kingmaker. So what does this mean? That means the actual settlers, uh, most extreme ones, obviously all Israelis are settlers, but the most extreme ones that are sitting in the middle of Hebron, in the middle of the city and taking uh, over the core of the city of Hebron, for instance, uh, and or uh, attacking the olive fields of farmers, these are now going to uh, have ministers in power and without them the government will not be functioning uh, so uh, ultimately Netanyahu uh, is just a symbol of, uh, of all of this and uh, we should be expecting uh, immediate confrontations uh, on all fronts today for instance there was uh, four Palestinian civilians that were uh, killed, uh, martyred by the Israeli forces in both Jenin and Jerusalem. Uh, the numbers are increasing. We see immediately, with uh, even without Netanyahu coming into power, now the caretaker government, until he comes into power, is going to do uh, try to show itself at least to be equivalent to Netanyahu and his bloodthirst. This is an, an article that you will find very interesting, Leith. Times of Israel. U.S. hopes members of next Israeli government respect open democratic society. State Department spokesman Ned Price refuses to comment directly on the results of the vote, vote but tells reporter he hopes Jerusalem will maintain, maintain, which implies that they're already doing it, quote, respect for all, particularly minorities. <laughs> Your thoughts on that, Leith? Yeah, this is what's uh, crazy. I mean, uh, even, you know, us speaking about Netanyahu and the coalition that he's forming, uh, 
you know, us speaking about Netanyahu and the coalition that he's forming as if it's the right wing. Well, in reality, if you put all the Israeli political, uh, you know, parties on on us on on the uh, the question of Palestinian liberation, equality, and what have you, they will all be at the extreme right end uh, in in that situation. So there is no way to maintain a quote unquote Jewish state, but in reality, a Jewish supremacist state. Uh, in the land of Palestine without continuous uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, genocide, and dispossession of the Palestinian people. Uh, And this bloodletting will not end except with the end of the Zionist colony uh, as we know it and uh, the creation of a secular democratic state in Palestine for all those who inhabit it and uh, accept equality. Those who don't want to accept equality will go back to supremacist lands uh, where they will maintain their privilege in Europe and uh, North America. So, Leith, in this Times of Israel piece, U.S. hopes members of next Israel government respect open democratic society. Two things. One, I find it interesting that the United States says that it's hopeful because the United States has used this very premise of undemocratic society and excluding rights to invade countries. So here, the United States is just hopeful when in other instances, it has used that as the pretext for intervention. And the other thing is the statement from Ned Price, Israel has always been based on our shared interests, but importantly, our shared values. So to me, what that says is, well, this is going to be business as usual. Of course. There is shared values between Israel and the United States, being both uh, settler colonial states built on the genocide of the indigenous people and the dispossession of them of their land and the continuing looting of their resources. This is uh, the truth. And so it's hilarious when I hear Canadian or Australian officials and American officials use such language because it actually betrays the fact that they are uh, also, uh, you know, guilty of these crimes. And of course, the the you know the Zionist colony has always been a, a racist endeavor, uh, where the population, the indigenous population including the ones that remained inside the 1948 territories, are abused and uh, mistreated and uh, dispossessed. Uh, The the Zionist colony is is a classic colonial Western project from the 1600s, stuck in front of our eyes in the 21st century. It's, It's like, you know... This is how, why it is such a sore eye, you know, as, as in, in every, the whole of humanity sees it every day and they can't uh, stop looking at such, uh, you know, sore uh, eye in the, in the world. So anyways, look, uh, we are, uh, as, as, as things are coming to an end for the, the, the era of uh, European domination over the world. I think 
the whole of humanity will continue to look at Palestine because it will indicate the liberation of Palestine will be the final indication uh, of uh, the end of that 600 years of uh, expansion of uh, European uh, power. Leith Marouf is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Ethiopia may experience peace as the terrorist organization TPLF has agreed to a ceasefire, but can we trust them? Also, pro-democracy protesters in Sudan reiterate their call for no compromise. Joining us to discuss this issue and more, we have Tunde Osazoa. He is on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace, and you can go to blackallianceforpeace.com for more. He's also the coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace's U.S. Out of Africa Network. Tunde, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ethiopia government Tigrayan forces agree to end two-year war. African Union says Ethiopia's government and Tigrayan forces formally agree to end fighting after talks in South Africa. Can we trust the TPLF? Are there any uh, groups involved that may be able to hold them to account? Tundeo Sazoa, what do we need to know? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we know that uh, the government of Ethiopia, the FDRE, and the to Grand People's Liberation Front, right, the TPLF, have agreed to a cessation of hostilities. Um, and, you know, the TPLF agreed to a, a number of things that they had refused to agree to, like this whole conflict, right? Like, we know that they've gone back on previous uh, uh, agreements and, and settlements, but this is more of a, uh, a concessionary agreement that uh, seems to be driven by you know, the state of the, the conflict or, or like their collapsing military position, right? Like the TPLF is in bad straits, right? And so, you know, language in the agreement, things like disarmament and restoration of law and order kind of, well, basically mean that the TPLF accepts the FDRE as the government of, of Ethiopia, which is something that they haven't accepted thus far. It also means that they've uh, uh, given up their efforts to seek regime change and return as um, uh, a ruling party. So, you know, I think this is a more, uh, uh, um, uh, I guess, in-depth uh, concession. This is something that uh, I think that that allows us uh, uh, to, to, to think that, you know, maybe the TPLF is, is willing to, to uh, stick to this agreement, unlike, you know, the previous agreements that they've, they've made with the FDRE. Uh, but, you know, I think there's still, you know, room for skepticism. But, you know, I, I think given the state of their, their military position, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it makes sense that they would they would make these choices. Um, but I, I think, you know, the implementation is also a difficult challenge, right? Like implementing this agreement, uh, there's still a lot of rebuilding that uh, needs to happen in the country. This war has been really devastating uh, on, on so much of uh, uh, the Ethiopian people, the Tigrayan people, um, and, and, you know, just... Uh, I, I think, you know, we'll still have to wait and see uh, if the agreement will be honored by the TPLF. But, 
Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, it, it really just uh, uh, looks to be a strategic defeat for the TPLF, and, and, and that's how I'm viewing it, though things are still kind of unfolding. Understanding that the TPLF was backed by the United States, and I'm going to draw a comparison or parallel to Ukraine and the Minsk Accords, and we found out later that the Minsk Agreement was was really a pause on behalf of the Ukrainian forces so that they could rearm and rebuild. How do we know that, again, particularly since the United States is involved here, that that's not what's happening here as well? Well, I mean, I think the United States has not given up on on this conflict. I think, you know, this is and has been a proxy war, like you said, right? Like even to these negotiations, right? Like the TPLF delegation arrived on a U.S. military aircraft in South Africa, and they were accompanied by the U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammond, right? And so, you know, the U.S. is, is all up and through this, like you were saying. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, there, it's likely that there's some sort of uh, uh, maneuver that the, that the U.S. is pulling. We know that they, you know, they already have a pretty uh, uh, intense sanctions on <laughs> Eritrea and on Ethiopia, that there are bills in Congress right now like the Menendez Senate Bill S-3199 that proposed, you know, even more intense or sweeping sanctions to control every aspect of Ethiopian society. So we know, we know that this is, uh, uh, that there's hybrid war, right, taking place uh, uh, led by the U.S. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the U.S. is not, is not giving up on uh, their objectives, but this does represent, uh, I think, a strategic defeat, this, this, uh, um, uh, you know, the state of the TPLF military, the, the fact that they signed this agreement. But you're right that, that we have to, uh, uh, you know, I think everyone should be cautious. The implementation will be difficult. And, you know, the U.S. probably has something up their sleeve. It's hard to tell what exactly. But, you know, the war in general has been a form of, uh, you know, all-out neocolonial policy. And it's about stopping Ethiopia from getting beyond the realm of U.S. hegemony. And so I think the sanctions that are uh, are in uh, that you know are being proposed, and even the sanctions that are in place right now are just ways of you know continuing that uh, uh, war making on the Ethiopian people. Uh, um, you know, while the, the TPLF is kind of regrouping. People's Dispatch uh, reports a year after military coup in Sudan, pro-democracy protesters reiterate call of no compromise, while right-wing parties negotiate with the army to reach a power-sharing agreement coalesced by the U.S. The streets show the people's determination to overthrow the the junta, argues the Sudanese Communist Party. Your thoughts, Tunday? Yes, well, um, I, I think this uh, this um, upright, well, the, the sustained, I guess, uprising, sustained movement against military domination, against military rule in, in Sudan is, is is inspiring. I think, you know, the, the Sudanese people and the way that they've organized themselves uh, into, you know, the various resistance committees across the country. I think that they said there's over 5,000 of them that are spearheading, you know, the anti-coup, uh, anti-military uh, domination demonstrations that have been taking place in the year since the coup. I think, you know, it, it shows how, uh, um, I guess, resilient the, the Sudanese people are, even under the, uh, uh, I guess, under in, in, in the state of extreme suffering, right? Like the, 
there, there's a real, uh, um, I guess, uh, uh, like the, the material conditions in Sudan are, are terrible, right? Like there are people that are really struggling in terms of not having access to their basic needs. Um, you know, the, the prices of all sorts of things are, are, you know, through the roof. You know, we could look at, uh, um, you know, I guess oil prices and, and, and even, you know, the prices of, of like bread and, and milk and things like, and, and just seeing how, how challenging life is on the ground in Sudan and, and the intense repression that the military is, is carrying out uh, uh, on the people, on the people in the streets and just, you know, general, uh, 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 in general, just the Sudanese people. I think it, it's, it's, it shows that they, that they aren't uh, uh, backing down despite uh, uh, all the challenges they're up against them. Um, and I, I think for, for me, it, it's, it's uh, uh, interesting to see, uh, like, you know, I, I think this is kind of a, um, uh, the strategy in general where, you know, uh, Western forces like the U.S. and others will, will um, you know, ignore the, the will of the people, ignore, you know, their calls for, for self-determination and, and sovereignty and, and go to, you know, some, some groups and uh, uh, try to install, I guess, um, uh, uh, some, some forces in the country that will be pliant or, or, or uh, I guess, in line with, with you know, these Western uh, uh, interests, Western dictates. We know that Sudan has, uh, uh, you know, uh, an, like this mass movement that is, is saying no to, to the current state of things, but, you know, the U.S. and others are trying to meet with, I guess, right-wing groups uh, to, to try and coalesce power and, and continue uh, uh, their state of affairs where, where they're setting the dictates. Um, and so I think for me, I, it's, it's inspiring to see what the people are doing. And, and I believe that, you know, they, they will continue to struggle uh, uh, for, for um, you know, for, their, for sovereignty, for self-determination, for the end to this military dictatorship. Um, and, and I think, you know, for, 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 uh, for us, we, we have to, you know, support their, their calls for, for, for those things and say, uh, uh, you know, and call for an end to, I, I guess, that, that uh, military occupation in the country. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's really, it's really an, an interesting situation that's been developing over the last uh, uh, few years, right? Like over the past couple of coups. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it, it speaks to, you know, the possibilities when, when people organize. I think they're even talking about their need to raise the level of organization despite the fact that they have, you know, these thousands of resistance committees in various neighborhoods. Uh, but I, I think it speaks to the possibilities of, of fighting back against against intense repression. So it's hard to tell the players without a scorecard. And you mentioned numerous coups that have taken place. But if I understand it, the 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 military junta is backed by the United States and 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 other Western countries. Uh, but the people of Sudan are saying no compromise. So this, to me, demonstrates again another failed U.S. attempt, as we've just seen with the TPLF. It, it, it looks like uh, the hegemon is failing on a number of fronts. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a profound testament to the character of neocolonialism uh, uh, in Africa more broadly, like this social and economic crisis in Sudan, right? Sudan being a country that's endowed with, you know, uh, well, well endowed with petroleum and natural gas, right? I think, you know, even going back to, uh, uh, you know, 19, not the 1950s when they 
uh, were newly independent from British colonialism. Uh, you know, they, there were all of these questions around, you know, the, the colonial legacy and, and like the divisions that were that stemmed from uh, uh, colonial rule and, and how that, uh, you know, led to this partitioning of Sudan into Sudan and South Sudan and, and how that was also directed by the U.S. and Western forces or, 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 or overseen or, or supported, right, that, that partitioning and how that is also contributed to this current crisis. Right. Like you mentioned the multiple coups like, you know, Bashir, right, who was a career military officer uh, uh, that uh, took power in, in a in a, a, a coup uh, over the civilian government. Right. In 1989, uh, 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 like after some social unrest. Right. Like he was recently. Uh, 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 um, well, he, he was kind of part of uh, like this transition into like the military uh, uh, rule. Right. They, they created the transitional military council. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think part of that was uh, 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 compounded by the partitioning of the Sudanese state into the two separate countries. Right. I, and before that, you know, Sudan was the largest geographic nation state in Africa before South Sudan uh, came into existence as a state. Right. And, and I think for, for us, it's like, you know, you, you mentioned the, the failure. It's absolutely a failure. Right. And, and I think the overwhelming resistance, this, this mass movement in Sudan is, is, is a testament to that, like you said. And, I, I, and for, for, for uh, um, you know, the, the, I, there's like uh, uh, this, this partitioning that has, you know, really grave economic and political ramifications. Right. And, and you know, the, the current leadership with, you know, Al Burhan could be, you know, trying to convene a national assembly to resolve the internal conflicts and, and issues that the country is facing. But, you know, they're not concerned with that, right? Like, this is a neocolonial situation. Unfortunately, uh, Tunde, a great, great, great segment, but uh, we have uh, run short of time. Tunde Osasoa is on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace. Go to blackallianceforpeace.com for more information. He's the coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace U.S. Out of Africa Network. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Some lawmakers are pushing back against the Federal Reserve as extreme unemployment numbers are likely to result from increased interest rates. Joining us now to discuss this and more economic stories, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Common Dreams reports, lawmakers to Powell, how many millions will be thrown out of their jobs due to Fed policy? In a new letter, members of Congress led by Senator Senator Elizabeth Warren take Fed Chair Jerome Powell to task over his apparent disregard for the livelihoods of millions of working Americans. Dr. Tawheed, is it a disregard or is there some level of, uh, shall we say, uh, criminal intent going on here? I think there's there's intent going here, and I think you don't have to uh, suppose it. Uh, Powell has said that his intention is to uh, get a reduction in wages, for wages to come down. Now, 
that that usually is is um, joined with an idea that it is wage inflation that's that's driving the current inflation, so wages need to come down. But the, but the data is clear that wage inflation is not what what's driving this inflation. It is um, uh, it is uh, corporate profiteering that is driving this inflation in 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 connection with also the supply chain shortages. And so for Powell to to say that his intention is to reduce wages is in fact to say that 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 is his criminal intent, if you will. It, it's not so much the inflation that's that's driving corporate profits into the stratosphere. It is uh, to get wages down uh, so that workers will have less power in the workforce. Doesn't Powell's response also indicate that he's still stuck or the Fed is still stuck on a demand side inflation cause as opposed to a supply side cause? And if he's talking about his whole intent is to bring down wages, well, that attacks the Democrats, the Democrats' position of a of increasing the minimum wage or providing for a livable wage, which is one of the things that Joe Biden campaigned on and promised in 2020. Yes, it do, it does both of those things. It uh, it um, uh, signals that um, the what we would think of as a Republican approach. Of, of wanting to get wages down in order to get profits up. Those two things go together. There's a wage share and a profit share. Uh, Republicans would typically want profit shares to go up. But now uh, in the, the Biden administration is allowing, and I'll say that, allowing the Federal Reserve, or at least in support of the Federal Reserve, wanting to bring wages down, which also increases profit share. And so now the Democrats and the Republicans are on the same side of the of, of that argument. Uh, and these, these progressives who have spoken out, 11 of them, I believe, wrote a letter uh, uh, asking, you know, how far is this going to go? How many millions are going to be out of work? Uh, what, what I find disturbing in this is that among the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, the, the representatives of the black community, there is nothing that's being said about the increase in unemployment. Um, you know, Powell has, has set a goal of, uh, well, not a goal, he has set an estimate that uh, the uh, rate hikes will will lead to about 4.4 percent in uh, unemployment rate in 2023. Well, the last time the unemployment rate was around 4.4 percent, which was in October 2021, the black unemployment rate was about 8 percent. And and so the black community is going to be seriously uh, hurt as it, as it almost always is. Uh, by this increase in unemployment, and and black legislators in the CDC are saying nothing about it. Uh, to your point about 4.4 versus 8, historically, since these numbers have been kept, unemployment in the African American community usually is double the national average. Exactly, double and sometimes triple. It has been at at, at times triple, and uh, that goes back to um, the the Great Depression. Uh, times, uh, but but certainly since since re- it's been recorded since about 1972. Wow. Well, I'll say this: the Congressional Black Caucus represents somebody, but I don't think it's the black community anymore. Memo to the Fed: interest rates heights. Interest rate hikes aren't cover working because inflation is being driven by corporations using it as cover to price gouge the people, argued former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich. And that gets back to something that we've discussed uh, ad nauseum and we need to discuss it some more is 
Is this the right cure for the right disease? Are they doing the right thing to address the problem that's driving inflation? Dr. Tawheed. Uh, no, they're not doing the right thing. Of course, in, in, in good times or with good intentions, the Fed uh, has tools in terms of raising interest rates to deal with demand-side inflation. This is not demand-side inflation. It, it is, one, supply-side uh, shortages that have increased the prices of goods, but it's also created an opportunity. This inflation process creates an opportunity for corporations to raise their uh, prices, and you see the result of that in increased profitability for corporations. So as prices are going up, corporations are, are, are seeing their profits also going up, their, their profit shares go up, which is an indication that, that uh, corporations are raising their prices much more than, it is, uh, than they need to uh, because of cost increases. And so there's profiteering. And so Robert Reich, it's good to see him out there. He's, a, he's an important voice. Um, uh, it's good to see him out there constantly talking about the, the, the Biden administration needs to do something about corporate profit, profiteering. Uh, this is out of the hands of the Fed. The Fed had, doesn't have the tools to do this. The Biden administration does. Responsible statecraft has a piece. The annual military budget could hit a trillion dollars by 2027. Uh, your thoughts, because... We're sending all this money to the Ukraine. You can't get clean drinking water in Flint, Michigan, but they don't. But but the the democratically controlled Congress does not seem to have a problem finding money for military spending. And, and it, in fact, it doesn't matter whether it's dem democratically controlled or or Republican controlled Congress. Uh, neither side, neither party has ever found any problem with increasing the military budget, uh, even though there are other existential crises that are going on. Of course, increasing the military budget means more spending into uh, weapons manufacturers, and so business is doing very well. Uh, it, it, the business of, of military production is doing very well with these increases. Uh, Democrats are, are traditionally would put themselves on the other side of that, of, of, of war profiteering and so forth, but, but they, they continuously also vote for, for increases, including um, uh, increases in the military budget beyond what the Department of Defense asked for. I think the last time it was $25 billion more than the Department of Defense asked for, and that was supported by almost every Democrat. I think there were one or two. Who, who didn't support that. Uh, and so in, in regard to the military industrial complex, both Republicans and Democrats are on the same side. Uh, they, they, and, and while uh, Democrats are, you know, talk, talk about uh, infrastructure and, uh, you know, Flint and Jackson water crises and other kinds of crises uh, that, that this country is facing and the world is facing in terms of climate change for the military and not find money for, for these other causes. Dr. Tawheed, um, President Biden had a speech last night in which uh, apparently this was his last, you know, plea for votes um, uh, before the midterm election. However, the polls say that the majority of Americans are concerned with issues rega regarding to their basic um, economic needs. And we've got some vague 
discussions about authoritarian and democracy, et cetera. It seems as though that uh, President Biden and his administration is far out of touch with Americans. And uh, your thoughts, in case we don't talk to you between now and the midterms, as to um, the results in the midterms regarding the voters of, of their economic positions or lack thereof. Well, it seems as if the Biden administration can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, there is a, a, a threat to democracy, uh, but there's also a threat to the ordinary lives, everyday lives of, of everyday people in terms of, the, of, of prices and inflation and their ability to pay rent and buy food. Uh, you would think that the president of the United States and the administration could deal with both things simultaneously, uh, but uh, they, they've chosen to focus on the, the fear uh, tactic of, of uh, you know, raising the, the fear of uh, authoritarian takeover by Trump and not the hope strategy of, of, of what we do about inflation and in, in improving the economic condition of, of everyday people. Uh, there's only fear here. There's no hope in that message. There's only fear here and there's no hope in that message. And that takes me back to the Fed and this fourth consecutive three-quarter of a percent increase in the Fed rate. And Powell says, we've always said it was going to be difficult, but to the extent rates have to go higher and stay higher for longer, it becomes harder to see the path of, to avoiding recession. Well, at what point, after having gone through a couple of these rate hikes and, and no impact on inflation, at what point does Jerome Powell say, uh, duh, I think we've made the wrong move? Well, I think, I think Powell is, is clear. If you listen to what he says, he's looking for wages to come down, which means for unemployment to go up. Uh, prices haven't, haven't fallen very much. We are now at 8.2% uh, in the inflation rate, down from 9.1%, but, it, but it's leveling off at about 8%. So these rate hikes haven't done very much uh, to 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 quell inflation. However, uh, there is has been a slowing in in uh, in wages, and there's also been an increase in in um, unemployment claims. And so, so, so women, think- women, women. So let, let me. I'm sorry to interrupt you, so, but let me ask you this because we're, run, we're running out of time. So, am I misunderstanding Powell's objective, or or is the Fed using? inflation as a cover to attack wages. Yes, they're, they're absolutely using using it as a cover. And, and, and they've blown their own cover. They've blown their own cover. You know, it, it, Powell has said what he intends to do, which is to, 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 to pull back when wages have decreased. Um, that hasn't happened, and inflation hasn't, hasn't done very much. So we have a long way to go if, if, uh, if, if inflation is the target. Uh, the, the working class will be completely destroyed and disempowered so that, uh, uh, you know, the, the growth in, in labor and, and union activity will cease because people will be out of work. That is that is Powell's intention. Let me ask you this. Isn't there the danger that this their actions, they could get what they want, but it could spin out of control into a downward spiral that throws you into an uncontrollable you know, uh, like a, a depression or something. We got about one minute. I, I think that's the case. And I think Wall Street is, is probably going too far. A little bit of, of, of unemployment is good for Wall Street because it, it lowers wages. Too much unemployment means that industry comes to a halt. 
And so this is this is going too far, and even Wall Street is realizing that that the Fed is going too far. Uh, Powell just just seems unrelenting in this in this corporate uh, atmosphere, particularly as corporations are able to price gouge and and blame inflation for their for their increasing profits. Um, uh, you know, it, it's almost the best of both worlds for corporations, but it can spin out of control and, 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 and is going in that direction. Dr. Linwood Tawheed is an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. New U.S. sanctions against Nicaragua are designed to hurt the country's poorest citizens. Also, the U.S. has no plans to stop its illegal occupation and looting of Syria. Joining us to discuss these stories, we have Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's an activist and editor of popularresistance.org. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. And I highly recommend popularresistance.org. I go there every day. Great information from Dr. Flowers. Alliance for Global Justice, a little bit people's think tank, a whole lot of organizing online, AFGJ.org. Today, new U.S. sanctions are designed to hit Nicaragua's poorest citizens. The Biden administration has announced new sanctions, which are intended to hit the poorest Nicaraguans, both in their pockets and in the public services on which they depend, Dr. Flowers. Yeah, I mean, first off, people need to understand that when the United States imposes these economic blockades on countries, this is entirely illegal under international law. A country is not allowed to interfere in this way, but the U.S. is doing that to more than a third of the world's population. And Nicaragua has been a longtime target of the United States uh, ever since the beginning of the Sandinista Revolution that was you know, done by the people, for the people. I was in Nicaragua in 2019 and traveled throughout the country. And it's just amazing the infrastructure that they're building, the the highways, better quality than we have in many places here. Uh, You can go into the remotest areas and they have good schools. They have medical clinics and hospitals. Um, They have affordable, you know, social housing, uh, all sorts of programs in place for the people. And it's no coincidence that the day that the U.S. announced these illegal measures against Nicaragua was the same day that Nicaragua announced their budget, saying that they're going to increase their spending on their you know, social infrastructure, something that we're decreasing here in the United States. I think it's also interesting. Uh, Nicaragua recently held elections, and as with so many other countries in the global south. And one of the questions that we've been asking on the show is, as a lot of these countries have been moving to the left and throwing out neoliberal governments that were installed by or supported by the United States, what was the United States going to do? And so it seems as though tactics such as these are the types of tactics that the United States is employing in response to uh, citizens deciding that they are sovereign and that they are going to do their best to control their own destinies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the United States doesn't want these examples out there. I mean, if people knew in the United States about what we could have, uh, 
you know, that we could have education and healthcare and affordable housing and, and decent, you know, paying jobs and, uh, you know, social security that was not paying you a poverty uh, living. You know, there are countries that are doing this and these countries are much poorer in the United States. They have, you know, in Nicaragua, they have structures in place to specifically lift up minorities and women. And they've been doing a lot of work with the indigenous population. In fact, a lot of the new infrastructure is being targeted into the Caribbean autonomous region, which is a region that was hit very hard a few years ago by the hurricanes. And so they're really investing a lot. Uh, and I visited those areas as well um, to, to build those areas up and provide the infrastructure that they need. And, and by the way, they were hit by two hurricanes just a week or two apart uh, that devastated some of those areas, and they had no loss of life because they had a program in place to make sure that they could get everyone to safety, something that we sorely lack here in the United States. This is from the United States Institute of Peace. Will other Central American leaders follow Nicaragua's authoritarian lead? This was from August of this year. As Ortega takes on the Catholic Church, the U.S. needs a new approach for democratic backsliding in Central America. The Nicaraguan government has intensified its confrontation with one of the country's most popular institutions, the Catholic Church. And they go on to say that Ortega has shut down all of these radio stations. And beyond Nicaragua, Ortega's actions tend to reverberate throughout Central America. I think that speaks volumes. Well, yeah. I mean, the Ortega government has been accused of, you know, cracking down uh, on, you know, democratic institutions or what have you, the media. But in, the reality is, is, is that people sh should know and ought to know that the United States, through institutions like USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy, pours lots of money into these countries to uh, have these media outlets that are controlled largely by the United States, to have nonprofit organizations, to even interfere with political campaigns, uh, supporting political parties. And these were the types of uh, of institutions that the Nicaraguan government was going after. They're saying, no, it's, and that's illegal under the United Nations Charter. A country is not allowed to intervene in the politics of another country, and the U.S. does that, and Nicaragua is fighting back against that, and so they're being punished. They're also being punished because they're forming alliances with Russia and China, uh, which many Latin American countries are doing because they, Russia and China don't try to impose the same neoliberal policies and political ideology on them that the U.S. requires. They mentioned in, in, uh, in this article an NPR segment where they say that uh, they repeat that the uh, Biden administration repeats the Trump era argument that Nicaragua is, quote, a threat to U.S. national security. This ridiculous claim rolled out again to justify Biden's actions has no basis in reality. Nicaragua is one of the uh, one of Latin America's smallest and poorest countries when, with a population under seven million, one of the lowest levels of defense spending in the world and a gross national product equivalent to only that of a mid-sized U.S. city. The idea that it threatens the, the security of its neighbors is absurd, much less that of the United States. Margaret. Oh, right. I mean, the population of Nicaragua is, is not much bigger than the state of Maryland, where I live. But what people need to understand is that under United States law, uh, which runs counter to international law, um, there are a few ways that the U.S. can impose these economic measures on another country. And, and the 
simplest way is to declare that country a national security threat. It did the same thing to, uh, you know, Cuba is considered a quote unquote state sponsor of terrorism. Venezuela is considered a national security threat. That allows the president to unilaterally impose economic measures on these countries. So it's, it's a political tool. It's not anything that's based in reality. And we also can't forget that Nicaragua has been in conversations with China about building a canal that would rival the Panama Canal. Right, right. And that's that's a huge threat to the United States because the U.S. won't be able to control what goes through that canal. Uh, so, you know, it, it's the United States is going to have to understand. And I think the article that you reference in the Alliance for Global Justice talks about this as well. You know, we're seeing in in Colombia a long-time tool of the United States. They call Colombia the United States Israel of Latin America, uh, you know, overthrowing that uh, government or replacing it with a more leftist government. Uh, the same thing just happening in Brazil, in Bolivia, in Honduras. The U.S. is losing its control over Latin America, and uh, it's trying desperately to hang on to it. Orinoco Tribune, U.S. has no plans to withdraw from Syria or end sanctions. Despite claiming its presence in Syria, its presence in Syria is solely to fight ISIS, U.S. forces instead maintain regime change policies against Damascus and illegally loot the country's oil. Margaret. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a crime. I mean, what's happening in Syria right now after, you know, the United States has devastated it for so long with a military attack going after, you know, as the United States does, going after the basic necessities of a country, you know, going after their wheat fields, uh, taking their oil, you know, just literally taking control of the region where the oil is and moving that oil uh, out of the country, uh, stealing it. And, uh, you know, that's why the U.S. is there. That's why the U.S. wants to control that part of the world. And it's just, you know, it's amazing when you hear representatives of the United States talk about how we have to be part of this rules-based order. The rules-based order, according to the United States, is we can make whatever rules we want. We don't care about international law. We'll just do whatever we want to serve our own interests. It's, um, it's devastating because Syria has such a need to rebuild and the U.S. is literally stealing its assets and keeping it from doing that. And it's the same thing like doing in Nicaragua, trying to go after the gold, which pays for many of their social programs. It's, it's the American way of war, as Roxanne Dunbar-Tease writes about, been going on for a long time, and it's such a crime. John, I think it's Kurt John Kirby says, Washington does not wish to shift the balance of power in Syria suggesting it has abandoned its regime change policy, but the U.S. continues to support armed militant groups, including those that have been trained by the CIA and they are anti-government. So we're not interested in regime change, but we will steal your wheat. We will steal your oil. We will back uh, militant groups that are anti-government, but we're not interested in regime change. Right. I mean, they failed on regime change, right? They 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 tried that route and it didn't work. Um, and and what did work for them was training and arming uh, what they called these moderate rebels. But, but really, I mean, we all know that the United States uh, is directly responsible for the rise of ISIS. Um, the United States has been targeting China, China, which has been trying to do something about these groups that are recruiting very, very poor Uyghurs uh, and recruiting them into into ISIS. And, uh, and the United States has been going after China for, for doing that. 
it's just it's amazing, you know, that, that that's what the U.S. does, but that's the reality. Margaret, uh, Caitlin, last article of the day, Caitlin Johnstone, Destroying Western Values to Defend Western Values. The fight for democracy grows ever more tyrannical. Now we learn that the U.S. intelligence cartel has been working intimately with online platforms to regulate the, quote, cognitive infrastructure of the population. Margaret. Yeah, so this is really interesting because a few years ago there was a report put out, I believe, by the Pentagon, and one of the and it was something about the the state of war, and and one of the big concerns they had was that they were losing control of the narrative. Public opinion opinion was turning against war. Uh, there's more and more people uh, turning against the fact that our Pentagon budget goes up by so much every year while our social spending uh, goes down, and so they have. They were, you know, they had to, quote unquote, uh, put measures in place in order to turn that around. And so that's what part of this is. And it's and it's being done in partnership with the major tech platforms. And then uh, I think it also references in that article about uh, Alan McLeod's recent work uh, about Israeli agents who are working for Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Google. Uh, we also know that uh, Facebook works with uh, the uh Oh, what is it? It's the the arm, the Atlantic Council, the arm that goes along with with NATO, uh, to be able to censor and try to control what information people have access to. Yeah, I think that's the Di- Digital Forensics Research Lab. Margaret Flowers is an activist and editor of popularresistance.org, a great site. I highly recommend it. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 